Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Meshlove. Today, we'll be exploring the need for novel folklore in an Iranian Renaissance. My guest is my good friend, Jason Reza Giorgiani, a philosopher and the author of many books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel folklore, of course, which will be the subject of today's interview, and Iranian Leviathan, which undoubtedly will also be touching upon. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure, as always. It's my pleasure as well. Uh, to begin with, if we're talking about novel folklore and, and your very unique approach to it, uh, obviously we'll be talking about Sodek Hediat's great novel, The Blind Owl. We will be. Uh, but one thing I hope to make clear in the course of this discussion is that um, the title novel folklore uh, doesn't simply refer to Hediat's book, um, it is a concept that I'm trying to develop from out of Nietzsche and Heidegger uh, in the course of my exegesis of Hedayat's Blind Owl. So, um, you know, Hedayat's Blind Owl is uh, folklore in the form of a novel, which is, is somewhat uh, paradoxical because folklore is the oldest narrative structure that we have in human history, uh, usually uh, dominant in oral cultures, although it survives, uh, you know, past the advent of literature. And, and, uh, I would say, I would agree with Heidegger that it still forms the substrate of every society today. But folklore is associated with oral cultures and, and is the oldest form of narrativity. Um, and Hedayat was a folklorist. But then the novel is the most modern form of literary expression. Uh, we had people like Petronius um, writing Satyricon in the Roman period uh, and, and other things that in some ways were similar to novels, prose narratives that were similar to novels, but they weren't quite the same because uh, this um, revolution of subjectivity that occurred around the time of Descartes, where you get first-person narratives, um, uh, really hadn't taken place. Uh, yet in the Roman epoch. So I would say the novel uh, is a quintessentially modern form of literary expression. So the, the, the phrase novel folklore is, is somewhat ironic and paradoxical. Uh, and I would argue that the blind owl, had I asked blind owl, is an attempt at, uh, you know, fusing the folkloric uh, w with the novel. Um, but there's a, a deeper meaning also to novel folklore, and that has to do with the project of attempting to generate a new folklore as the basis for the evolution of a society. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we've done a previous interview just on the blind owl, and I'm going to link to it right now for viewers who haven't seen it. It's really worth going into because in that context, we, we talked about the blind owl as a, as a very important novel or book in and of itself. Today, we're looking at it in relationship to the idea of an Iranian Renaissance. Right. And, and so I, 
don't want to really focus too much on Sadeh Hedayat and his life, um, you know, from a biographical perspective. If viewers are interested in that, they should watch our previous discussion on Hedayat and the Blind Owl. Uh, but, you know, as you said, I'd like to focus more on the, the concept of novel folklore and the way in which uh, the Blind Owl is... Um, is appropriating, uh, but also dynamically adapting certain um, mythical ideas and symbols from out of the Iranian heritage. It's worth mentioning that this book has a unique place in the history of uh, Iranian literature. It's probably considered um, widely as the, uh, the most important work of modern Persian literature. Um, and so, uh, you know, you find a number of symbols in this novel that, uh, that come from Zoroastrianism. And, you know, as we've discussed previously, Hedayat studied the Middle Persian language in Bombay and um, is considered uh, some, somewhat of a scholar of uh, ancient Iranian religion and mythology. But the ways in which he, um, he critically adapts some of these symbols in The Blind Owl uh, is really revolutionary. And I think people who uh, try to interpret Hedayat as an advocate for some kind of conservative or orthodox restoration of Zoroastrianism are doing the man a, a great disservice and underappreciating his genius. Well, let's, uh, let's begin to get into why that would be the case. So, there's this idea of the Dana in Zoroastrianism. Uh, the inner conscience... Um, spectrally projected in the form of a female. Uh, after you die, you're supposed to encounter uh, an exteriorization of your conscience uh, in the form of a female, and depending on the state of your conscience, she's either, you know, a, a youthful Valkyrie, uh, immaculately pure youthful Valkyrie, uh, or she's like an old hag, or anything in between, or, or a... Um, or a lascivious uh, whore also are some of the descriptions of, you know, how one's inner conscience can be reflected in, in one's dana uh, upon death. And uh, you're supposed to meet this figure on the bridge um, of judgment on the way to, you know, the final destiny of your soul. And we see Hedayat incorporate the dana into the blind owl in the form of, um, I mean, this is a novel that takes place in at least two distinct time frames. Uh, medieval Rey, the city of Rey, which later became Tehran, uh, and then the modern Tehran of Hedayat's period, the Tehran contemporary to, to the early um, phase of Hedayat's life. And uh, in the medieval time period, uh, the Dana takes the form of um, the wife of the narrator. And then in the uh, early modern uh, Tehran time frame, uh, she is this ethereal woman who shows up at the doorstep of the narrator's home and comes in and surrenders her body, lays down on his bed to die. Uh, she's a kind of uh, fairy-like creature. Um, and so th this is the Dana figure, you know, in both uh, time frames of the, the blind owl. But if you pay close attention to how Hedayat deals with this figure, you'll see that and, and with the, the emotions and attitudes of the uh, protagonist toward this figure, you'll see that he's trying to develop a, a notion of the, of the Dana that is not a moral conscience, but conscience in the sense of personal authenticity, an authenticity that lies beyond um, 
rigid judgments of good versus evil. And in that way, uh, I think that his development of the Dana idea runs parallel to Friedrich Nietzsche's idea of, of seizing fortuna, of, of fortune as a, as a woman, um, and uh, of uh, being conscientious in the sense of um, being faithful to one's own genius and aiming at personal authenticity rather than uh, living within the confines of any established moral system. Well, it's interesting that you're invoking Nietzsche at, at this point, because Nietzsche also is famous for uh, his work, also Sprach Zarathustra. Indeed, and, you know, there's a direct relationship between uh, the blind owl and, and thus spoke Zarathustra. Um, the idea of the Superman appears in the blind owl. It's, it's quite clear that Hedayat is uh, setting forth a certain vision of the Ubermensch, uh, where there are parts of the novel uh, in which the protagonist expresses attaining a superhuman condition, uh, achieving powers that are beyond the human. And uh, these are, in fact, explicitly associated with uh, the, the serpent venom uh, poisoned wine that he drinks and the serpent dancer uh, who is his mother. And so, uh, Hedayat's also connecting this notion of superhuman power to the Indian idea of Shakti, the, the tantric Indian idea of Shakti. And the as female I, goddess. Yes. Well, the, god, the goddess of power, mm. uh, and the goddess most closely associated with the Siddhis or the superpowers, um, w which, uh, are pursued, uh, most daringly by adherents of the left hand path outside of the confines of conventional Hindu morality. And this is something we discussed previously in yes. relation to the blind owl. But um, so with re reference to Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra, you have this image of the Ubermensch, of the Superman in the blind owl. And you also have the protagonist railing against the rabble, um, expressing uh, profound contempt for mass man uh, as, uh, you know, a, a herd of cattle that are concerned only with eating and sex and, you know, uh, are, are asl fundamentally asleep and, uh, uh, lacking in, in, in any personal integrity. And so in that way as well, uh, the blind owl parallels the Nietzschean distinction between the Ubermensch and the Untermensch and the subhumans mm -hmm. or, you know, the rabble as Nietzsche also, as, as Nietzsche's Zarathustra also sometimes calls them. But then what's fascinating about the blind owl is that Hedayat also deconstructs this dichotomy between the Superman and the, the, the last man or, or the mass men, uh, by paralleling or mirroring, by mirroring certain descriptions of, uh, the narrator in certain characterizations of people who he lumps together with the mass men. I mean, th there are a number of characters in The Blind Owl. Uh, the old odds and ends man, uh, the narrator's uncle, uh, pe people who um, uh, are degenerate. They are uh, somehow um, just very unsavory characters mm -hmm. and uh, uh, morally corrupt, more, you know, at least highly morally uh, questionable. And yet, uh, in very, at various turns in the novel, the descriptions of these characters are mirrored almost word for word, uh, by, um, characterizations of the, uh, protagonist. Mm -hmm. and, and so there is at the same time an attempt to deconstruct such a radical dichotomy between the, 
uh, Superman, um, and uh, Mass Men. So Hedayat is is essentially saying that that these unsavory characters are what you might call exteriorizations of his own inner world. Yeah, and you know this this relates to the idea of syzygies and 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 other um, Persian Gnostic uh, concepts that you find in Manichaeism, um, because in Manichaeism, on the one hand, there is this distinction, as in many forms of Gnosticism, between an enlightened elite. Uh, and, uh, you know, the majority of society who are basically unconscious, um, playthings of the archons. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, uh, the, the Gnostic is a radically alienated individual generally and, and, uh, in Gnostic, uh, worldviews and including in Manichaeism. Um, but at the same time, in Manichaeism, you have the idea of a syzygy or, uh, a single soul being incarnated in more than, than one body. And Hedaya plays with this idea in The Blind Owl, where we get the sense that uh, all of these uh, unsavory characters in the novel, both male and female, are projections from out of the narrator's psyche. They are exteriorized shadow sides of the narrator's own psyche. And so, on the one hand, he's adopting the Manichaean syzygy idea, and on the other hand, he's deconstructing the Manichaean dualism uh, of you know, the, the uh, enlightened Gnostic uh, who's radically alienated versus the masses of, of unconscious people in society, uh, the, the Hylic people, the materialistically inclined people. So he's adopting elements of Manichaeism and critiquing other elements of Manichaeism. And this is the kind of critical attitude that Hedayat has toward the Iranian tradition in general. While I'm on that subject, let me also mention that even Nietzsche's distinction between the Obermensch and the Untermensch uh, and, and Nietzsche's emphasis on um, personal conscience uh, and uh, on the authenticity of the individual, uh, themes that become, um, and, and the alienation of the individual from society, uh, themes that become central to existentialism in subsequent figures such as Heidegger and Sartre have been traced back to ancient Iranian spirituality. In uh, his book on the Gnostic religion, his classic study of the Gnostics, Hans Jonas argued that Heideggerian existentialism can be traced back to Iranian Gnosticism specifically. So in the, in the case of Nietzsche, is he also embracing this, uh, this critique of, uh, of the duality between the Ubermensch and the uh, Untermensch, or, or is he buying into it? Well, I think he's buying into it more than he's, than he's critiquing it. Although there is this, uh, you know, scene in Thus Spoke Zarathustra where Zarathustra is carrying the, uh, the midget or the dwarf, the dwarf on his back all the way up the mountain. And at a certain point, Zarathustra falls ill from the recognition that he and the dwarf are one. And this is, you know, a, a kind of way that Nietzsche is trying to suggest that it, it's impossible to wholly separate the Superman from the Untermenschen. But, but by and large, in Nietzsche's worldview, there is, this dichotomy is retained. Whereas Hedayat presents that dichotomy in The Blind Owl, mm-hmm. but then he also deconstructs it. Mm-hmm. So with regard to the idea of an Iranian Renaissance, uh, I gather that uh, you're suggesting that those people who hold up uh, Hedayat as, as uh, an advocate for the restoration of Zoroastrian culture in, in Iran miss 
the fact that he's also critiquing. Yeah, uh, I think that Hedayat would have had an even more critical view of Zarathustra than than perhaps uh, Nietzsche did. Uh, you know, in, in uh, Ece Homo, Nietzsche says, you know, I've not been asked as I ought to have been why I chose Zarathustra as my mouthpiece. And he goes on to explain that Zarathustra is worthy of great reverence for having been the inventor of the moral worldview. Zarathustra is the first person to have elaborated a cosmology in terms of abstract principles and uh, a morality that wasn't based on the conventional customs of a particular society, but on um, absolute good and absolute evil. Uh, he, as Nietzsche puts it, introduced uh, morality into the wheel work of history uh, and a cosmic history. Um, in fact, he came up with the idea of cosmic history, of, you know, an, an evolving universe tending toward an apocalyptic end of history. And, uh, but so Nietzsche says that, yes, we should recognize this genius of Zarathustra, but truth is also the highest uh, virtue in Zoroastrianism. Um, Nietzsche has a whole narrative about the transformations of the will to truth throughout the course of history, how it's ultimately recognized uh, through the transformation that, that the will to truth undergoes in Christianity, it's ultimately recognized um, on the other side of nihilism that the will to truth is the will to power. So Zarathustra is the one that uh, posited truth as the highest value. And in Nietzsche's eyes, he's the most honest thinker that there ever was. And so if Zarathustra himself were to return today, which is the narrative of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, it's a returned Zarathustra. Uh, and if Zarathustra were to return today, he would be the first person to invert his own teaching. Um, the inventor of, of morality would recognize it as the greatest error himself and invert it. And uh, I, I think that Hedayat would have taken very much uh, the same view uh, of Zarathustra, that you know what, what that man with, with his creative genius would have advocated today would have been very different, if not diametrically opposite, to what he advocated, you know, uh, nearly 3,000 years ago. Well, Nietzsche, of course, is well known for having authored Beyond Good and Evil, in, in which basically he, is, as I read it, it's a critique of Christian morality. Uh, in a previous interview, as a matter of fact, one of our recent interviews, we, you, you pointed out that uh, one of the great Christian theologians, Teilhard de Chardin, with his notion of the, of the cosmic Christ, uh, uh, the perfection of Christ at the, at the end of uh, time, uh, actually, uh, that idea was derived from Zoroastrian thinking, uh, conveyed to Teilhard by way of uh, Russian cosmists, uh, whom he associated with in Paris. That's right. And you see this kind of utopianism critiqued in The Blind Owl as well. Um, in particular, Hedayat takes aim at the medieval form of this uh, Zoroastrian utopianism. Uh, in the medieval epoch, uh, in Iran, there was a, a philosopher by the name of Shahab al-Din Sohrevardi, who was ultimately, uh, in, in 1191, executed as a heretic by the caliphate. Um, and Shahab al-Din Sohrevardi uh, elaborated a certain version of the Zoroastrian idea of um, a, a, a utopian realm of light taking shape at, at the apocalypse, at the end of history. Uh, and th this was a realm, though, that you could access 
you could access in any particular historical epoch, but it would become the dominant reality. It would, it would sort of um, supplant the physical world at the end of time. And this is called Nakoja Abad, or uh, Neverland, uh, Nowhere Land, Neverland, literally utopia. I mean, it translates, uh-huh. you know, in an identical way as the classical Greek term utopia. Uh, but Henry Corbin, who was, you know, a great Iranologist in the 20th century, mid-20th century, and also a, a prominent student of Heidegger. And, and a close friend of Carl Jung. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, uh, because of that, also adopted the archetypes as a very prominent idea in his thought. Um, Corbin uh, really focused on Sohrabardi out of all of his Iranian studies. And he insisted that Nakhoja Abad is not utopia in the sense in which that was, that, that idea was developed by science fiction authors. That, you know, these, uh, science fictional worlds of tomorrow th- that we find uh, from Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, you know, onwards to H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come. These visions of utopia, uh, shouldn't be conflated with Nakhoja Abad because, you know, what one person considers a utopia uh, like the rulers of, uh, you know, the society in Aldous Huxley's, Huxley's Brave New World, uh, could legitimately, to someone else's eyes, be a horrific dystopia. Yeah. And Corbin wants to preserve the purity of Nalkoja uh, Abad as a sacred idea, as a realm of refuge from the um, sufferings uh, and, and tragedies of this world. Uh, but Hedayat takes Nalkoja Abad and puts it into the blind owl as this um, ethereal geometric city, this, uh, this creepy city where all the buildings are um, in, in polygonal form and uh, there are these uh, um, almond-shaped dark windows that look like eyes staring out at you and the walls have a phosphorescent glow at night. Uh, he inserts this um, city into both the past lifetime frame of the blind owl and the contemporary time frame. It's, it's both some place that the narrator wanders into from medieval Ray and also from modern Tehran. And so it's this kind of trans-temporal imaginal realm. But Hedayat depicts it in such a macabre uh, way uh, as a kind of twilight zone that it winds up being a critique of the Nakhojaabad idea. In particular, he, he shows, uh, all of the people, um, who he's associated with in his life, uh, you know, the, the odds and ends, the old odds and ends man, the hearse driver, and so on and so forth, the, the denizens of his society. He shows them all dead and mangled in that world to suggest that it's a world where humanity's gone extinct. It is a world beyond the end of humanity, and it is the abode of the fairies, the paddies, uh, like the paddy, the, the fairy who comes and takes refuge for, uh, with him, the one who walks up to his, his doorstep and in a wa- comes into his home and surrenders her body to him, uh, the fairy who was his wife in a past life. And, and so Hedayat is engaging in this critique of the uh, uh, Zoroastrian idea of a utopia, suggesting that there's never going to be a realm of light that's uh, totally purified of, of all darkness, where you know all of the darkness has been distilled from out of it. Um, and our attempt to seek such a utopia is a, is a deflection away from facing the demons within ourselves. Now, you use the term an imaginal realm. Uh, to my knowledge, that's a term that was coined by Henri Corbin. 
it was coined by Frederick Myers. Oh. And I think Corbin is, is drawing on Myers' sense of the term of, you know, the, the imaginal as the uh, future evolutionary state mm-hmm. where an imago is a perfected form of an insect like a butterfly as compared to the caterpillar. And so the imaginal realm is, is the realm in which we will all have achieved our perfected forms, which is a Zoroastrian idea. There, there's the belief mm-hmm. that we are all evolving toward our perfected form. Um, and that after a freshgard or alchemical transmutation of the world, uh, we're going to, our bodies are going to uh, be perfect instantiations of our personal archetypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that these archetypes have a kind of trans-temporal existence uh, before this apocalypse takes place. They, they already exist, except we're, except we're being drawn toward, through history, we're being drawn toward the eternity in which this is already the case. A, a kind of perfection at the end of time. Yeah, at the, at the end of time, but, but that also has a trans-temporal power to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I understand Corbin's uh, work, which was discussed uh, uh, previously by me in, in some uh, in-presence monologues, I, I did riffing, so to speak, on uh, Peter Kingsley's uh, work of uh, Carl Jung and the End of Humanity. Uh, Corbin seems to suggest that, uh, to my way of thinking, that the imaginal realm exists, one could say, in the imagination, but it's not imaginary. It's no, he, he, he uh, although he doesn't, he's not very explicit about it because I think he doesn't want to be derided and he's, he's sensitive about, you know, having uh, skeptics come down on him. He, he takes a very psychical view of the imaginal and believes that it has a reality. Yeah. Uh, and he attributes... Uh, ESP and, and uh, telekinesis and so forth to the realm of the imaginal. And of course, you mentioned Frederick Myers, who was a great psychical researcher and author of the uh, human personality and its survival of bodily death, which I think brings us to uh, the whole question of uh, the afterlife and its various manifestations uh, as depicted in The Blind Owl. Yeah, so reincarnation is a huge theme in The Blind Owl. And uh, this is another way in which uh, Hedayat defies uh, definition as um, a, an advocate for restoration of Zoroastrianism mm-hmm. in any orthodox form. Because Zoro- uh, reincarnation is not an idea that's part of orthodox Zoroastrianism. There's a belief in the afterlife, um, uh, in, in a kind of heavenly or hellish afterlife after the judgment of the soul, which was the prototype for the Judeo-Christian and Muslim uh, view of the afterlife. That's the conventional view in, in Orthodox Zoroastrianism. As well as Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it is, it is false to argue that uh, reincarnation is not an Iranian uh, idea and that this is evidence uh, of Hedayat's eclecticism and of his being influenced by Indian culture, you know, where, he, uh, you know, he took up a residence for some years in Bombay. Uh, the idea of reincarnation is in the Iranian spiritual tradition from the beginning. You know, we've done another program uh, in which we discuss how Gautama Buddha may have been a Scythian sage, uh, may have been um, a an Iranian presenting a rival spiritual worldview to Zoroastrianism. And then when Mani, when the prophet Mani in this early Sasanyan period tries to synthesize Buddhism with Zoroastrianism and he recognizes Zarathustra 
Buddha and Christ as the three great world teachers, one of the uh, elements of, of Buddhism that he incorporates into Manichaeism is the belief in rebirth. Mm -hmm. Then the Mazdakites, the Mazdakite Gnostic movement of the later Sasanian period, also included a belief in reincarnation. Um, and uh, even after the Islamic conquest of Iran, you can see, um, despite its, its uh, heretical uh, status with respect to Islamic orthodoxy, you can see the belief in reincarnation surviving in the order of assassins and other radical Shiite groups, um, particularly the, the Ismailis. Uh, so, reincarnation has a long-standing history in the uh, spiritual universe of Iran, and it's an idea that Hedayat uh, incorporates fundamentally in, into the blind owl. Yeah, because the the blind owl shows uh, basically two historical epochs that uh, somehow are in uh, relationship uh, through reincarnation to each other. Yeah, on the simplest level in the contemporary time frame, the uh, protagonist takes drugs, uh, opium, I believe, and it induces past life recall. And so, on this drug trip, he, he goes into a past life. Um, and, um, by the way, I mean, this, uh, this uh, association between drugs and, and past life memory uh, is also explored in a film by Gaspar Noé, Enter the Void, uh, where, uh, you know, you, you have a, a character who takes DMT and he uh, subsequently dies, and it's it's unclear in the film whether he's still on the DMT trip or he's actually died, but at any rate, he goes through the Bardo state, and this film, Enter the Void, um, is basically an attempt to depict the characteristics of the Bardo state, which which is a parallel to the Blind Owl, because I suggest that if you put the Blind Owl next to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you might actually reach the conclusion that the entire narrative is taking place in the Bardo state. That instead of, uh, instead of us following the narrator as he remembers a past life from out of a contemporary time frame, both his experiences in what appear to be the contemporary epoch and his memories of a past life are subjective impressions that he's having within the, the transitional state between death and rebirth. And that's to account for, you know, the psychosis of the narrator, why, why he seems so unhinged and, and dis, disorganized in his thoughts. Um, and, and it also is to account for, you know, all of this projection, this e exteriorization of one's suppressed fears and uh, projection onto others of dark uh, aspects of one's own psyche. And another parallel that you see between um, Enter the Void and uh, the Blind Owl is um, an exploration of the ways in which taking reincarnation seriously uh, runs up against certain taboos like uh, incest and, um, you know, the, the kind of relationship it's appropriate to have with one's family members versus, say, with one's lovers. Uh, in, in both The Blind Owl and in Enter the Void, we see how uh, across lifetimes, uh, what are considered the uh, customary boundaries, uh, you know, that, that distinguish types of relationships may break down. And, you know, th there's actual empirical evidence for this in, in the body of, of, uh, of uh, research that Ian Stevenson did on reincarnation, where he found a number of cases where, for example, 
somebody um, would lose their spouse. Uh, you know, a, a, a let's say a husband would would die uh, while his wife was still alive, and then you know the wife would go on to remarry, and uh, the husband would decide to come back as his former wife's child. So you know the, the woman conceives, and uh, the dead husband decides to uh, come back as the child of his wife. Um, which brings me to another uh, reincarnation-themed film, Birth, with uh, Nicole Kidman as the protagonist, where um, Nicole Kidman's character suffers a tragic loss of her husband, and after you know a number of years, uh, grudgingly marries, remarries, and. Uh, by that time, a, a boy's been been born and, and raised up to ten years of age, uh, who who winds up stalking her and and ultimately claims to be a reincarnation of her dead husband, and she starts to develop this uh, you know very controversial relationship with this boy that wrecks her marriage, uh, and and that raises all kinds of questions about you know uh, social mores. But your point is that this is not just fiction. We're talking about a database at the University of Virginia of uh, now some 2,500 cases or more that have been investigated by researchers, uh, largely based on young children who, as soon as they can begin to talk, start uh, uh, reporting memories of previous lifetimes, often uh, with sufficient detail for researchers to actually validate them. Yeah, some of the most disturbing cases are when a, a child remembers who murdered them in a previous life. And uh, Stevenson has a number of these cases. And, you know, it was really uh, disturbing because Stevenson studied mostly cases from small towns where everyone knows everyone else. And you'd have a child um, remember uh, who he was murdered by uh, while that person is still out and about in society and was never um, uh, charged, never even suspected of having committed that murder. Uh, and, you know, a number of films with, with this kind of, of storyline have been made. Um, back in the 70s, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud was one of them, uh, where this professor starts to have flashes of a past life, and he finds the town where it transpired and ultimately has to confront the wife who murdered him and, and uh, come to terms with uh, why it is that she murdered him, you know, because of the, the way he treated her and what kind of life he was living. Um, and more recently, there's there's been a film, Dead Again, where uh, the two main characters are both reincarnated, and uh, they uh, one of them recognizes that the other was was um, her assassin in the previous life. Mm -hmm. And in that in that film, the two swap sexes from one life time to the other. And this is relevant to the blind owl because, uh, you know, in the contemporary time frame, the ethereal woman that the uh, protagonist encounters is the wife that he murdered in his past life. So there is also this issue of, you know, a karmic connection with someone with whom one was romantically involved, but also karma involving, you know, having, having murdered somebody. Uh, and so, you know, Hedayat was way ahead of his time in uh, looking at these questions involving reincarnation that were only explored in the West in popular films, you know, beginning in the 1970s up to the present. So you're proposing that uh, an authentic Iranian revolution, and I might add parenthetically, any kind of evolution of culture anywhere else in the world to be authentic has to confront not only the data of, of reincarnation, but the implications 
that, that seem to transcend all notions of conventional human uh, social behavior and morality. Yes, and my suggestion is that we have the resources within the Iranian heritage to do that. Uh, the Iranian, the pre-Islamic Iranian heritage included Buddhism and Manichaeism and Mazdakism. And these, these forms of spirituality survived in occulted forms in something like the Order of the Assassins deep into the Islamic period. So to think that you could just rewind the clock 1400 years uh, to some postulated Zoroastrian orthodoxy, which was never truly characteristic of Iranian society even before the advent of Islam, is not going to give you a genuine renaissance. A, a rebirth of a society requires uh, an evolution. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm uh, putting forth this idea of novel folklore, what I mean to suggest is that a new folklore needs to be developed in the contemporary period. I agree with um, Heidegger, who's adapting Nietzsche's concept of monumental history, that our approach to history and to our cultural heritage has to be one that's aimed at catalyzing future evolution and further creativity. That uh, an antiquarian um, understanding of history that uh, seeks to in a conservative fashion, either preserve or replicate some fixed idea of the past is not going to lead to the, the, the further revolution of, of uh, society. And, and, you know, why would you want that further revolution? Because you want it to be a dynamic, vital, creative, and ultimately, for that reason, strong society, a vibrant society. I mean, a renaissance is a call for revitalization. And, you know, a, a artificial recreation of some uh, conservative ideal of, of what Iranian society, frankly, never was, is not going to give you that. And what it's also going to do for, at this point is divide Iranians against themselves. You would see a psychotic fragmentation of Iranian society if an attempt were made to transform contemporary Iran, uh, the contemporary society of the Islamic Republic of Iran, within the space of a few years or even a decade or two, into some kind of a neo-Zoroastrian society. You would see it... At, uh, a catastrophic internal fragmentation and disintegration of the society. And you would also see a total isolation of Iran from its uh, neighborhood. So instead of, um, you know, uh, an Iran that's extending its influence throughout the core of the Islamic world, which is taking place today, uh, I think we have a, a kind of a nascent fifth Persian empire forming at the present time. Instead of that trajectory continuing, you would see a total isolation of Iran from the core of the Islamic world, uh, with all surrounding countries, even Iraq and Afghanistan, that were integral parts of, of Iran throughout most of its history, um, set against this anomalous neo-Zoroastrian society, rather than being uh, places that can benefit from and opt into an Iranian cultural renaissance that it could extend throughout the entire core of the Islamic world, and could help to... Uh, to foster a vision of world order uh, and uh, a, a, uh, a better model for organizing society on a planetary scale. I think that Iran should be at that table um, negotiating with other great civilizations on the ideal form of our future planetary society. And Hedayat is a great resource for uh, catalyzing that kind of Iranian renaissance that can be globally relevant. I mean, this was a man who, you know, spent much of his life in Europe 
and also sojourned in India and tried to reconnect Iran uh, both to its its eastern Indo-European cousin uh, in India and to uh, its its western Indo-European cousins. And I think to portray him as uh, an advocate of the restoration of orthodox Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism or to think that that's why he was in Bombay simply to study at the feet of the Parsis is is absurd and it is doing a great disservice to one of the uh, the greatest geniuses in Iranian history. Now I know you're really aiming your discussion here towards uh, people who are looking at uh, uh, what might the future of uh, the country of Iran be, but I think it has much wider implications. And uh, for example, we will be releasing uh, in a few weeks. Uh, a discussion, what we've already recorded, on transhumanism and the fact that the entire human race is uh, facing a concatenation of technologies that are all accelerating and at some point may accelerate into a, a, a spike beyond which uh, human culture as a whole is going to be radically transformed. Uh, probably it'll be hard for most people uh, listening to this video today to even imagine Imagine that world. Yes, in our discussion on transhumanism, I leveled a critique at some of the more materialist uh, advocates of uh, transhumanism. Uh, some of the people who conceive of the approaching technological singularity in an overly reductive, mechanistic way. However, I do agree with transhumanists on the time frame that they project for the arrival of the technological singularity. Uh, I don't think that we need to subscribe to a, a materialistically reductionist view of, of consciousness as a mere epiphenomenon of matter or, or, or anything of that kind in order to see how, you know, within the next 30 years, uh, genetics, robotics, information technology, uh, nanotechnology are going to converge uh, in a way that uh, threatens the fundamental parameters of the human condition, that uh, poses an existential threat to humanity on a planetary scale. And so one of the things that um, people who are advocating for a restoration of Zoroastrianism in Iran don't understand is that if they break Iran right now with the attempt to uh, lobotomize the country and uh, re-engineer it from uh, a an emerging post-Islamic society into an orthodox neo-Zoroastrian society, if they break Iran in that process, they are not going to have the time to put the pieces back together and build up a strong Iran that can contribute to the global discussion about how we're going to navigate the challenge of the technological singularity. We only have a generation, we only have 30 years for Iran to step up uh, to the table of major players on the planet um, entering into a discussion about how best to meet the challenge of genetic engineering or what limits to draw on artificial intelligence or what the parameters are going to be for the, the uh, use of robotics uh, and, and how to deal with, you know, the revolutionary challenges that poses to labor and so forth. For, for Iranian values to play a role in that discussion, for the Iranian civilizational heritage, uh, which I think has been more influential than, than the heritage of any other single civilization throughout the course of history, for that treasure trove to be relevant to the global discussion over the transition potentially beyond humanity, uh, I think we need 
to keep Iran strong and to promote a social evolution in Iran and a kind of Iranian renaissance that's uh, evolutionary as much as it's revolutionary. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, a brilliant, stimulating discussion. But if I may, uh, let me just turn to the audience and, and say that if you go to the comment section of this video, you will see a link to a GoFundMe page for Jason so that he can continue the important work that he is doing. Unfortunately, this brilliant intellectual has been slandered and defamed to such an extent that he's no longer employable in the uh, academic or think tank circles where uh, one can tell from obviously listening to him that he clearly belongs. So he's dependent right now largely on uh, support from people in the general public who understand the crucial role that he can play in the future. So I encourage you to go to the GoFundMe page and to contribute generously to Jason Reza Giorgiani. And once again, Jason, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming to Albuquerque and being with me. I'm the one who should thank you. It's been a pleasure as always, Jeffrey. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.